Welcome to the Serverless Economics Podcast, where we talk about how your company can leverage serverless to optimize operational expenses. I'm Josh Proto, joined by Ryan Jones, and we are part of the leadership team at Serverless Guru, a cloud consulting company specializing in reducing operational expenses with serverless. Today, we're going to be diving into a case study about how iRobot transformed from being mainly a hardware company to relying on the cloud to support its IoT, Internet of Things, enabled robotic technology. And if you're short on time today, like always, you can download the episode outline in the podcast description. Now, iRobot is a leading global consumer robot company. They design and build robots that empower people to do both more inside as well as outside the home. Now, this case study takes place all the way back in 2015, when Amazon had its first Prime Day. On that fateful day in July, the company sold over 14,000 units of its Roomba vacuum cleaners. This one-day sales number underlined the reputation for the innovation and value that iRobot had built up until this point for its customers, and underlined a challenge that iRobot would face just a few months later in September, when it would release its very first internet-connected Roomba vacuum. So, in July 2015, although there were spikes in the purchases of Roombas, it wasn't until that September when a large number of people who were trying out their new connected Roomba vacuums for the first time started to increase the amount of traffic to the iRobot Home application, the mobile application that would allow the customers to set up and control their connected robots. In other words, iRobot had so far operated primarily as a hardware vendor with its Roombas, but right now was about to bet its central line of business on its ability to run a high-availability, customer-facing cloud application and an Internet of Things back-end platform. So, Ryan, right out the gate, we're seeing that iRobot is, you know, sort of making a very large shift in its business model, moving from a company that is providing hardware to providing more of a customer customer experience uh, using a, using a backend application technology uh, specifically rooted in Internet of Things and IoT. I want to get your input on serverless and IoT. Does serverless particularly work well with Internet of Things, uh, or is it sort of a fish out of water in that situation? Yeah, so IoT does really well with serverless. Um, they mesh really well because a lot of the IoT things that are happening are small compute. Uh, intensive, so they might happen infrequently as well. So potentially, you know, taking the Roomba example, maybe the Roomba is not running twenty four seven. Maybe it runs infrequently. Maybe it turns off once in a while. Um, and there's different ways that you can use utilize, uh, you know, for instance, cloud functions and other AWS resources to actually be able to pull in this data and actually do data analytics um, as well as clean it up and show something back to the user if they have a you know a third, a second like mobile application or web application. That supports that hardware device. And so you can do a lot of really interesting things by using these fully managed services um, on the cloud, which work in with serverless. And so IoT is like really big in that area, not just for robotics, but also for things like uh, IoT devices as well. I'm 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 trying not to use the the trigger word because I have one sitting next to me, but um, you know, uh, Alexa. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so I think it's a it's a really good space um, for serverless, and it allows. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> Alexa's joining the podcast today. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, IoT serverless really good fit. That's good to know because in the case study, you know, iRobot continues to say, you know, they're not start, they're not stopping there. They're 
main vision isn't just to save people from the drudgery of vacuuming, as they say. They believe robots can one day help solve a problem that has prevented the IoT industry from really maximizing its value, which is, you know, creating a house that simply knows what to do and reacts accordingly. So they certainly have very big ambitions for serverless as well as the IoT industry as a whole. And uh, I guess you sort of touched on it a bit, but do you think there's ever a point where the needs of IoT will ever exceed that of the capabilities of serverless? That's a really interesting question. I think that's a seemingly a hard question. So let me just try to think through that a little bit. So will will IoT ever go past the current capabilities of serverless? I think actually, I think it's one of those things where IoT is definitely pushing a lot of serverless forward. So there's a lot of services, for instance, with AWS that are released specifically for IoT devices because they have to do things which regular web applications and mobile applications and other background processing that a lot of companies do, uh, they're not anywhere near as, uh, they don't need as much requirements, right? So like if I imagine an IoT device that in real time is streaming things back to the cloud, that has a lot of requirements around it. And mm-hmm. that, that requires a lot of, uh, you know, really uh, intricate tooling and fully managed services, which don't need to happen with a web application. Um, and, and you might go, okay, well, my web application needs to have real, real-time subscriptions and all this stuff, but not to the same level as like an IoT tractor or something, right? Where it's actually like on a field and it's actually doing some tasks to basically help with the, the crop cycle or something, right? And so like mm-hmm. in those scenarios, those real-time connections and feedback that's coming through um, AWS has seen this across the entire world and they've built specific services for it. And then now some of those IoT services are so far beyond some of the other serverless offerings for web applications and mobile applications specifically that people are actually adopting the IoT services for web applications. So I think that what we've seen, um, you know, at Serverless Guru working with IoT uh, development with serverless is we've seen this kind of like hybrid approach where sometimes, you know, me being a developer as well, and then seeing some, uh, you know, like MQTT type service or something like that uh, with uh, AWS IoT and then being like, you know what, I'm going to use that in my application. Um, it may not fit exactly the use case. I might have to do some like work around for it, but it meets some requirement that I have. And it's one more tool that I can kind of pull from. Uh, and if that didn't exist, that whole side, then I might be limited in, in what I can actually do. So I think moving forward, I think that IoT is definitely going to drive serverless forward. And I think that serverless will develop with IoT, especially on on AWS and Google and, and Azure as well, so that as these requirements change and as people need their Roomba to communicate back faster and do other, you know, compute on the edge and all these things, uh, serverless uh, offerings are going to increase as well in, in quality and maturity. Fantastic. I think you... I think you reframed my question in a really positive way, which is really what I was trying to get at, which was, you know, trying to get a sense of, you know, when I think of IoT and, you know, robotics, when that, whenever that's talked about, there's so many things we can imagine, but it's difficult for us to actually accomplish them. And, you know, maybe some of that imagination I can see driving the ultimate value and the ultimate ability of serverless, uh, of serverless services and serverless applications. And uh, inter- it's going to be an interesting world to see just, you know, what serverless will look like when we're, you know, powered by Skynet or something, something crazy like that. So. So it was during this increased demand that iRobot decided that they needed to remain customer-focused 
and on its central value proposition of leading-edge robots that relieve customers from menial chores and give them time for what's most important. And that is why they started to offer connected Roomba vacuums. Ben Kehoe, part of their team, said customers are demanding easier ways to interact with a growing number of products and technologies throughout the home. Uh, Cloud connectivity provides Roomba customers with even more convenience and control so they can use their phones to manage their Roomba whenever and wherever it's convenient. And so it was following the launch of this first connected product, it became increasingly clear that we couldn't achieve the scale and extensibility we needed with the turnkey solution that they decided to purchase. So this is really interesting. Before using AWS and before using serverless, use a turnkey solution. Um, Do you have any ideas of what that could potentially, what that looked like, Ryan? When they say turnkey solution for um, you know, some sort of cloud service. Like, what does that look like? Is that some something that's just like a Amazon or AWS or GCP, but on a smaller scale? Yeah. So I think that a lot of people, what they'll do is when they're trying to evaluate, you know, for instance, they were a hardware company and they're they're starting to dip their toe into uh, how do they actually host this to make this connection between their hardware device and have the internet connection. And I think that we see this sometimes where companies will look for kind of a hosted provider, which is similar to AWS or GCP or Azure, but it's more focused around offering a very limited subset of services that they can use that achieve maybe 85, 90% of what they need, but it's it's going to allow them to get uh, their time to market a little bit faster. However, you know, it's inflexible in the ways that once you actually get to market, you might realize that your requirements... um, change pretty dramatically. And I think that that's probably what we're seeing here, where they had this hosted provider that allowed them to get some things working, but then they saw that it wasn't flexible enough. And we've seen that in multiple case studies. It's probably one of the biggest common problems that we see as serverless consultants. On the serverless guru side, we've had projects in the past where we've helped migrate somebody to AWS that was using a hosted provider before, strictly because that hosted provider would have an hour of downtime uh, and this company, this client that we were working with was working with the government and they couldn't afford to have an hour of downtime. Um, and there was, there was no way to reschedule, uh, that maintenance. It was just something that happened across the entire, uh, set of customer base that they had. So I think that, you know, this is a very common pattern. I think that companies will do this strictly from the perspective of like, how do we start? And, you know, and, and obviously it's part of the process, right? Like you have to learn by experience. So they took that first step. They tried to go out on their own, uh, find a hosted provider, and they realized actually just maybe switching to AWS might be a cheaper option and also build that internal in-house expertise. And then what companies will sometimes do as well if they're starting completely from scratch and they want to go to AWS and they want to learn how to do serverless as well, they'll just hire consultants, for instance, and then they'll come in, they'll help lay a foundation, they'll help transition what they're doing currently and make that work in a serverless environment without having to go through the multiple year process of learning what all the terms are, trying to find the best architecture, trying to make sure that everything makes sense and aligns with the company. You know, you can bring in a consultant, have them do a small month or multi-month contract, and then get all of that, all the tools and things that you need to actually make your team successful in that new environment. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a common problem because at first you look at it and you go, oh, wow, we can, we can pay $100 a month or $200 a month for this hosted provider. But when it locks in your customers to have this bad experience, then that $100 pales in comparison to the lost sales and the lost revenue that you that it, you end up incurring or the development time that you're blocked on 
Um, because as they say sometimes with, you know, for instance, on Wix websites or, or uh, Squarespace, is that sometimes to actually code around Wix and code around Squarespace, you actually require development chops that's more or greater than building it from scratch. And so when you get into that situation where you have to build workarounds that are much more complex than actually building the application from the beginning, then you can get into a situation where you're kind of just maintaining this, this kind of monster of, a, of an application or project and... Uh, at that point, you know, it's it's worth it to just be like, hey, look, we we took this step out. We went to a host provider. This isn't what we need. This is what our customers need. We need these different requirements. We need real-time streaming, all these things. Here's these services over here that we've heard about. We need somebody to come in, contextualize it, make it real for our exact context. And then from there, our development team can pick it up, move forward with it. And then maybe we have some support situation to make sure that the team's well-supported in, in migrating over. So... Would you say that there's ever a time, though, that maybe uh, an alternative service provider could be more beneficial? I know, um, you know, recently I would probably say I would be hard-pressed to ever think of why you wouldn't use something like AWS or GCP, you know, one of the larger cloud service providers for whatever your project is. But I know you've started to have more experience with just some of the alternative and very niche providers. And not necessarily saying that you should go into those those providers, but maybe what are a couple you know reasons why you would potentially want to choose a different provider, or maybe like two different things you should be thinking about when thinking about is this provider going to work for me in my use case? Yeah, so great question. So I think that for for me specifically, the way that I've started to transition is that I've looked at what am I trying to accomplish, what do I want this outcome to be, and what are the ways that I can do it right. And based on that, I can go, okay, I want to make a website. Why do I want to do that? I want to bring in customers through my website. Okay, how can I do that? I can build it from scratch. I can use, uh, I can use Bootstrap. I can use React. I can use Angular. I can, I can make HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all these things. Uh, how am I going to host it? I could use Firebase. I could use Amplify. Um, and then it gets into the next thing, like, how am I going to handle the form submission? How am I going to do the backend? What code provider, Bitbucket or GitHub? And then I get into, as a developer, I think that, you know, I, I think developers can often fall into this trap where we want to build things because we like building things. We like writing code, but sometimes writing more code is actually not the right answer. And so what I found with myself is that I've been able to <laughs> detect, Hey, Ryan, you're starting to just want to write more code. And so instead, are there other options? And so now I'm spending a lot more time up front thinking about, you know, how can I do this? And. One of those answers is not actually something that at first I was very resistant to this at first, which was using a hosted, like using a, you know, one of these like, you know, like a Wix equivalent. Um, and I think it, it fits for the specific use case. So for instance, with Serverless Guru, we have a podcast uh, called Talking Serverless at talkingserverless.io. And, and that website, you know, is built using Wix. And it was a really easy experience. It, it allowed us to throw the website up really quickly. We don't get a lot of traffic through it, so we don't have a lot of form submissions. If we do, it, it goes to an inbox. We see it once a week. Um, we don't have a lot of custom functionality on there. We don't really need to. It allowed us to throw it against a domain and start getting SEO. It allowed us to host the podcast episodes against our own website. It allows us to relink to these things without having to spend time trying to build a, a media integration into a website with an AWS backend and 
have a form submission API that handles with, you know, uh, Lambda code and Node.js and all the other implications of that. And, you know, like I said, what what code provider are you hosting it on? Do you have a CICD process? What does it look like? And instead, it was just like, hey, I'm going to try to take this idea as fast as possible and put it onto something and see if I can turn it into a reality. And so I think that that's the biggest thing that I've gotten out of these type of platforms where I go, I've got an idea. I want this podcast website. It already has a media integration. It already has a form. It already has some like background. I can just throw that together really quick in like a day or two days or, or a week. And then I can be okay. I probably don't need to modify this very often. If I get a lot of traffic, if the product actually picks up in usage, then I'll look at optimizing it. But until it's proven out, I don't need to invest uh, more time into it. And I think that that's where we can sometimes go, oh, okay, well, I could pay $30 a month for Wix or I could build it myself. And what you don't realize with that is that that $30 a month is actually a really, really cheap option compared to what the normal development hourly rate is and thinking about developing code from scratch for 20, 40, 100 hours or more uh, when you could have just paid you know, $30. So it's it can end up being the 90% cheaper option uh, just paying for a fully managed provider and then building it out really quick, making sure that you don't have any uh, multi-day or multi-week periods where you're not working on it and it's not released. So you release faster, you start building traction, and then if you hit limitations, which I can guarantee you that we want to do stuff with the podcast where we want to roll out videos and we want to put it on YouTube and we want to have text articles and all these things and maybe we want to generate that automatically and we want to have a thread and, and a user interactions and all these things. Maybe even people have their own accounts and you know we can go on and on and on and once it's proven, once there's a base and uh, and people are actually using it or interacting with it, then we can start going, okay, how can we take this one step further? And that's where we get past the Wix functionality. That's where we get past uh, the other fully managed um, website creation type tools uh, and platforms. And so I think that as your use case develops and as you actually get that version one out there and people start working with it, then that's where the 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 value of it maybe drops. But I think at first, if you want to get started and actually make a lot of progress, I would actually lean that way off out of the gate. And I would lean that way. And this is something that we've seen with serverless. Um, and this is something I, I believe Ben Kehoe even wrote an article called serverless is like a mindset. Uh, it's basically the idea that I want to use as many third party integrations as possible, because I want to lower my overhead. And even any code at all is extra overhead. So if I write a Lambda function, at all for some functionality, that's additional overhead that I now have to maintain and I now have to uh, continue to develop it. If there's a new developer that joins the team, they have to understand it. If I use a separate library that, that I created and it's stored somewhere else, I have to explain that. And you end up getting into these traps where if you just used something that was uh, you know, a fully managed connection versus writing it yourself, it ends up having these crazy downstream effects. Um, to add one more point and I'll turn it back to you, Josh, when it comes to uh, VTL, which is Velocity Templating Language, basically, I won't go into the details of it too much, but it allows you to basically write connection without having like a connection between a cloud function, which is your business logic um, or your, your backend, you know, backend as a service uh, compute, and then connects it to like a, a, a data source like DynamoDB, for instance. So I'm probably saying this in a slightly wrong way but what, what it's basically communicating is that you don't actually need the uh the compute layer anymore it's not a requirement for some uh, specific functionality and what we're seeing and this is playing out in real time 
is that people are creating APIs that connect directly to their database and back, right? So there's no, there's no business logic there that says with an if-else statement, hey, you asked for create user, so I'm then going to create a user in the database, and then the, the database is then again give me a response, and I'm going to return that back to the, the front end, right? Instead, what we're doing is we just have this like simple file called a velocity templating language file, and then we have an API that understands how to map the request to the database directly and back. And there's no Node.js, there's no Java, there's no Golang, there's no Python, there's no dependencies, there's no source code, there's no, you know, like it, it just goes on and on and on. And you're getting rid of this, uh, this complete overhead. And what you can imagine going into the future is more and more of these type of connections with less and less business logic. And if I eliminate, um, let's say I had CRUD functionality, which is create, read, update, delete for users on my platform, if I wrote that functionality out with a cloud function or with the server or with Express or anything else, I would have to you know, write hundreds of lines of code and I would have to make sure I'm using these third-party libraries and I have to have deployment mechanisms and all these things to support it as well as the onboarding time for future developers. Or I use a, a static file which allows the request to map directly to the database and back using some type of uh, service from AWS that service in this case would be AWS AppSync. AppSync knows how to translate that request to the database and back. I'm able to do everything I could do before with the uh, with my hosting my own compute, but I can do it automatically now. And, and that's kind of a beautiful thing. And I think that's something that we're going to see a lot more in the future. I fully agree with that. And, you know, in summary, I think, you know, you made some really good points, which is, you know, focusing on what your what your end goal is, what that end result is not just for the functionality of your application or your technology, but also your customer experience, as well as do a bit of a breakdown on just what are the necessary steps in order to get from point A to point B. If you don't have to write everything yourself, then you probably shouldn't. You know, I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, what's the the MVP, but that's sort of only one part of the process. Like, what is the minimum I need to do in order to make it? But really also understanding, which I think, you also touched on a bit is, you know, what is your minimum expected value from once you complete this process, what do you actually have to gain at the end? And I think that also changes that, changes that uh, equation a little bit. You don't want to be putting in a lot of custom time and effort into something um, that really doesn't have a lot to gain just in the first go around. Uh, and so those are all points that, you know, as you were saying, I think really, really are key when determining, well, what is the service provider that's going to be right for me right now? So it wasn't long after iRobot decided to use this turnkey solution that they decided they needed to do something different. And eventually they settled on using AWS Amazon Web Services. Keo goes on to say that AWS Cloud offered an essential combination of scalability, global availability, and breadth of services. And that what really grabbed their attention was all the powerful tools and integration capabilities that enable us to use serverless architecture and save us the headaches of learning to scale. And, you know, I think this really touches back, Ryan, a little bit and what you were saying about how, you know, you want to be using as many other services as possible. If you don't have to write it yourself, then you're going to be able to release things faster. And if those systems are all proven beforehand um, by people that aren't you, you get to use the benefits from others' mistakes, then everyone, then you're really winning. You're really ahead in that ring. And then they decided to run their Roomba web application using about 25 different AWS services. Again, this is going back to using a variety of services. And then at the core of the iRobot platform 
were specifically AWS Lambda and AWS IoT platform, which is a specific platform geared towards IoT devices. And then sort of the case study wraps up really talking about the iRobot Vision, which is a a forecasting agency, Gardner Inc., uh, believes that there will be 20.4 billion connected things, IoT devices, by da-da-da-da this year, 2020, and that homes are continuing to create IoT-related refrigerators, lights, HVAC systems, but iRobot argues that the value of this connectedness will remain out of reach until there is more up-to-date data mapping information about houses and the kinds of devices that are inside them. And uh, Kehoe goes on to say, you know, to achieve a seamless smart home experience in which the home and the smart devices without limit respond to our daily needs autonomously, two things must happen. First, the burden of programming devices must be removed from the consumer. And second, the home needs to understand itself, what the layout of the home is, the location and purpose of each room, and where the home's various smart devices are located. Now, that's a bit more specific from before in the earlier part of the article, Ryan, where they were talking about, you know, IoT devices, they can run on serverless. This is giving you a bit more details on the use cases. Are you, is, does this still seem like a job that serverless can't handle? Yeah, definitely. I think the uh, AWS IoT platform, uh, it's very robust. The usage of AWS Lambda and the different functionalities coming off of that is going to scale really well for these use cases. The idea that they're going to have to do more complex functionality as they go, such as like mapping the home and being able to communicate with other devices and having that ability to kind of centralize all this data and the consumption of a lot of data. Because when we talk about IoT devices, we're talking about a ton of data flowing through a system. And so I think that serverless is a perfect use case for that while also keeping the burden on the development uh, developers actually staffed to actually maintain it and operations people at a minimum. Fantastic. And Ryan, I, w- I also needed to ask, cause you know, we focus on expenses and operational expenses. What are sort of the relative costs? What would the relative costs look like if they were trying to do something on premises? Can you even do on premises, uh, things with, uh, information with IOT devices, or are you still probably going to have to leverage virtual machines in, in order to make that? make that a reality. I, I wouldn't imagine that, you know, Roomba would want to send out an agent to hook up a server at the resident's house or anything, but I don't know, maybe it could, it could have gone into something crazy like that. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, you can, you can probably do like an on-premises setup. I think that the thing that was talked about before with like, once all these devices came online is where they started to see uh, cracks form because of just probably the scale of it. And so, I think that that would be a situation where on-premises and even cloud virtual machines or containers without, you know, without proper scaling on these things, uh, it's very hard. It's much harder to scale on-premises servers that are physical uh, in your office or in your data center yourself than it is to use virtual machines. And it's, it can be more difficult to scale virtual machines than it is to scale containers. And it can be more difficult to scale containers than it is to scale AWS Lambda functions, uh, cloud functions. So in that, in that paradigm, uh, that's where I would go. Yes, it, it probably would be more difficult to use uh, on-premises servers strictly from the scalability side. Like if I was building Roomba from scratch, uh, you know, I'm, I, I might use a local server in my office. I might have my laptop run it and have a connection there. And the Roomba will be able to communicate with the Wi-Fi 
and then sit and basically hit the, the API endpoint and send data back and forth. And so that, that might be how it would work with an on-premises or with virtual machines or containers or even uh, cloud functions. But when you think about scalability and being able to do all this stuff without increasing your overhead, that's where I would always probably go with AWS Lambda, especially with the, you know, usually these IoT devices and how they're actually operated. Um, it would, it makes a lot of sense to use AWS Lambda and serverless. And it also removes a lot of the infrastructure and the overhead and maintenance that you would typically have to do with other systems. Indeed. And I think, you know, that really leans into, you know, the final word of the case study is, you know, talking about how this vision of interconnected Internet of Things technologies creating an artificial intelligence uh, household future. And that, you know, iRobot really believes that Amazon Web Services is the key to making that vision a reality. And I think that, you know, one of my major takeaways from this whole case study is that, you know, AWS is being relied on not just for some of the day-to-day more more typical either monolith or legacy systems in order to make those systems more effective, more efficient, but also to pioneer new technologies and to pioneer, you know, things that haven't been created yet. And we're seeing that in terms of robotics and Internet of Things, they're sort of feeding each other as one advances that the other one is trying to catch up and that sort of thing. And and in that lies a lot of opportunity just for growth. You know, that future is not written yet, but uh, it's being written in serverless. Do you have any final thoughts on the case study, Ryan? Uh Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's a really good use case. I think that iRobot's definitely pioneering on, on this front. And I know that Ben Kehoe is doing a lot of work for the serverless community, so definitely check him out. Uh, and iRobot's talks on uh, all the different various platforms like YouTube, uh, Medium, I think they write a fair amount of articles too. Their Their architectures are, you know, fairly hardened in the fact that if you were an IoT company and you were still running, you know, virtual machines or containers or even had on-premises for various things, or you're a toaster company that's thinking, can I make a talking toaster? The answer to that is yes. And by looking at how other people have been successful in the IoT space, using their transitioning their hardware product over to an IoT device and how they've been able to do that successfully with serverless and AWS is definitely a really good place to start. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a perfect use case for people that are doing things that aren't web applications and mobile applications. I feel like a lot of times all we talk about is web and mobile applications uh, when really there's a whole new emerging market that's popping up with IoT. And it's a really important space and something that I think that is going to change a lot of the ways that we you know, run our entire lives. You know, for instance, you, you talked about uh, smart homes or you started hinting at it earlier mm-hmm. um, and that connectedness. Definitely. So thank you, every, and, you know, even uh, even Alexa got to join us for a quick second on our podcast. So, you know, it's only a matter of time until, you know, no matter what we say, we'll have some smart device whispering in our ears or offering us to offering us some sort of solution or, you know, vacuuming our house while we get while we get to do a podcast. You know, the future is closer than we think in some ways. And, you know, we'll be sure also, I think, Ryan, you mentioned their architectures and some of their diagrams. I remember looking at some and thinking they were fairly robust. So we can add that into the show notes as well for the description for people if they wanted to take a look, make it easier. 
And on that note, I'll say, you know, thank you all the listeners of the Service Economics Podcast. You know, if you ha- if you haven't yet subscribed or rated us either on Anchor or iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or however you're listening to us, please feel free to uh, drop us a like, direct- drop us a comment. And if you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. Again, I am Joshua Proto with Ryan Jones, and this is the Serverless Economics Podcast.